Welcome to The Bone Beat, conversations on health policy issues affecting musculoskeletal care and supporting advocacy efforts to advance access and quality. Brought to you by the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. Here's your host, Kristen Coltis. Thanks for tuning in to this special episode of The Bone Beat. We will be airing our regular monthly episode during the last week of April, but wanted to bring you this add-on episode on the topic of COVID-19. Now, it goes without saying that the pandemic continues to impact the country and world, but no group of people feel that more than our patients and the entire healthcare workforce. And this episode will cover the congressional response so far in AAOS's advocacy to shape fast-moving policy for much-needed relief and flexibility. But before we get into that, I also want to call your attention to some new clinical considerations that AAOS has published since we recorded the episode. You can find them in our COVID-19 Member Resource Center under Guidance for Elective Surgery. And essentially, these are some guiding principles that can be really helpful as policymakers and our members begin making the decision about resuming elective surgery. And with that, let's get into the episode. Today, we're going to get into a topic that has been top of mind for many of our members, driving a lot of their daily life, both uh, personally and professionally. We're going to be talking about COVID-19. So my co-host for this episode is going to be Catherine Hayes, who is a senior director of government relations at the AAOS in Washington, D.C. And our special guest for this episode is Congressman Brad Winstrup from the 2nd District of Ohio. Congressman Winstrup brings experience as an Army Reserve officer, Iraq War veteran, and small business owner, having treated patients for the last 26 years. In the 116th Congress, Congressman Winstrup serves on the House Committee on Ways and Means and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Thank you, Congressman Winstrup, for joining us. And thanks to you, Catherine, for being on this episode. Happy to be here. It's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. So like I said at the outset, we're going to be talking about um, the congressional response to COVID-19. So I'd like to start with you, Congressman Winstrup. How did fighting this pandemic and creating support programs through the various relief programs we're going to get into first become a priority for you and your congressional colleagues? Well, certainly it became a, a huge priority when you started seeing more and more people getting ill. Um, obviously more people than we would normally see with uh, typical flu. And so that became an issue. Um, And then as we saw that we had to take action and we had to mitigate the the progress of this disease, you saw the shutdown of businesses. And probably one of the things that hit home the most for me was the stopping of elective cases. Uh, I practiced on my own for about 12 years and then spent about 15 years as a partner at uh, Wellington Orthopedics in Cincinnati. So I clearly understand what this is taking, how it's taking its toll on an orthopedic practice. And, And so... Uh, it became very personal, obviously, for a lot of us. So as a member of Congress, we're dealing with not only the economic side of things, but for me especially, to dig into the healthcare side of things, the effects on, on our healthcare system. And so it's, it's a little bit personal. And it's also been an advantage, if this is going to happen, that I have relationships with all our local hospitals. 
and with the with the leadership there and had that from when I was in practice and also to be able to reach out to my fellow providers in the area to just see exactly how they're being affected and how we can try and make things better. Catherine, I think Congressman Winstrup hit the nail on the head um, that the closing of businesses, given the direction and guidance um, from CMS and others to cancel or postpone elective surgery. What else are you hearing from our members when this all uh, became a, a challenge? So the you know, initial response, what we heard was, you know, concern to make sure that hospitals and potential surge areas had both the personnel and the equipment needed in order to handle this. Um, but as uh, the congressman mentioned, uh, once elective surgeries um, became, you know, became apparent that we needed to um, halt elective surgeries, the concern then turned to musculoskeletal patient safety. Um, and, you know, even though a lot of orthopedic surgeries are elective in the sense that they can be scheduled, there's only so much that they can be pushed off before, um, you know, we turn into um, very dire situations. Uh, and so we've heard a lot from members um, who are concerned about what will happen uh, if this goes on for much longer and what will happen to their patients and what will happen to their practices. Yeah, Catherine, um, clearly the virus is impacting um, the general healthcare organizations, uh, physicians across medical specialties, and you you and Dr. Winstrup hit on um, some of the ways in which it's impacting orthopedic surgeons directly. But uh, I'd like to get into the breakdown of some of the stimulus bills. Again, we want to be talking about the congressional response here. So uh, the first package, the Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Supplemental Appropriations Act, uh, passed the House on March 4th, the Senate on March 5th, and was signed into law on March 6th. That bill created a billion dollars to immediately assist small businesses hit hard by the economic shutdown. Congressman Winstrup, can you expand on that first package and some of the ways um, it's been helping orthopedic surgeon members? Well, the first phase and the congressional response, what they call phase one, uh, keyed on monies for diagnostic tests, uh, support treatments, vaccine development, and um, and some of the FDA to protect the integrity of medical products, uh, especially those that were being manufactured uh, overseas. Some went to CDC uh, as far as the Infectious Disease Rapid Response Fund, disaster assistance loans for the small businesses, and and some for the State Department and USAID. Then, then phase two uh, went a little bit different route uh, to some degree. It paid sick leave for medical leave workers, uh, uh, medical leave for workers, uh, increased access to telehealth. And that's one of the things that I think obviously hits home uh, to your members is the increased access to, to telehealth reimbursement for that. Um, it, uh, you know, the House and Senate right now are not scheduled to meet again until, until May 4th. And uh, we, we hope to, um, to do a little bit more by that time, obviously, because we're finding some of the glitches, especially in the uh, Paycheck uh, Protection Program, where we've run out of money and we are trying to get that passed and funded further because that is affecting a lot of our small businesses, which is many of our practices, obviously. At the same time, we are trying to make sure that we're getting the, the appropriate funds out to hospitals, and you know, a lot of it has already been designated. But beyond that, our rural hospitals are in dire need as well. 
You you touched upon the impact that this is happening having on rural hospitals, and I think it's important to uh, make the point that we're not just looking for relief to keep the offices of our surgeon members open so that they can keep staff. Obviously, that's a huge um, priority, and as you said, that's being addressed in some of the first and second relief packages. But um, but but. Even having access to care, I think it's important when we when we explain and when Catherine goes to Capitol Hill and meets with your office, other offices, and talks about the ways in which we can help our members, a huge piece of that is ensuring access to musculoskeletal care for our patients. So, Catherine, if you could um, tell us how some of those conversations go and, and why it's so critical from AOS's perspective that we get that relief. So having access to care as we're able to open up the economy and potentially put people back into, um, at the very least, outpatient surgery in order to get the musculoskeletal care that they need, uh, I, I think is an important part of this. Um, you know, especially in areas where there's maybe only one or two hospitals or only a couple of physician practices that cover wide areas. You can't have someone going, driving, you know, 60 miles or 100 miles to receive their care um, and coming back and forth for that. Um, and so I think uh, making sure that there's, a, you know, physician practices available uh, once we're able to open up is key. Um, and Congressman Winstrup, I think before we began talking, you were sharing a story you heard um, from one of our doctors. Do you want to um, share that with our listeners? Yeah, let, let me let me first comment on the elective uh, procedure uh, component, if you don't mind, because that's been so key in many areas besides just an orthopedic surgery. You know, I have had a, I have a neighbor who has prostate cancer and his biopsy was canceled. And this shouldn't be the case. We reached out to our governor. We tried to make it clear the CMS guidelines on this still allow for this. The problem at the beginning was trying to hoard our supplies as much as we could because we were short to make sure that it was going towards taking care of people that have contracted this virus. But it's time to open things back up because of the negative effects of putting things off for a long period of time. And I know that all of your surgeons understand that. As we open things back up, we have to have local flexibility because what's, what's happening in, say, Cincinnati, Ohio is the rural areas that I represent as far as number of cases and the likelihood of, of there being a problem. But if we can do our normal preoperative testing and include the test for the coronavirus, we should be up and running. And certainly anything that deals with chronic pain, uh, debilitating pain, and otherwise impairments of, of a long-term treatment course, we really need to move forward. And we're starting to see that that's being understood and opened up. But I do want to share that story, and this is going back about three weeks ago, as most of this was getting more and more recognition, and especially once elective surgery was shut down. Uh, one of your, your members, A.J. Seth, Dr. A.J. Seth out of Canton, Ohio, contacted me because he had been doing so much research on this, and to the point that he had been looking at the, the Chinese research and actually engaging with an infectious disease doctor in China, and we have been working side by side and really have come right along with where the FDA is as far as the use of convalescent plasma for patients that are, are sick 
and can benefit from the antibodies from someone who is sick and recovered. And so, you know, everyone always says, an orthopedic surgeon did that? And I said, absolutely. And he's been very bright and very much out ahead of, of all that's taking place. And it's been a, a treat to work with him. Well, that's a great story and experience that you had with one of our doctors. Um, you touched upon two things that I want to highlight. One, the ways in which federal agencies like the FDA, Health and Human Services, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services are able to um, shape the future of healthcare to respond to this pandemic. Obviously, in this episode, we're focused on the congressional response, but you're right that, um, that these agencies have a pivotal role in being able to relieve certain burdens um, and provide critically necessary equipment to our to our members. So I, I, I do want to get into um, a little bit more on patient safety. The other thing you mentioned was on being able to open the economy back up and resume surgeries. Congressman Winstrup, from your perspective, what is it, what's important for Congress to take into consideration and others um, in policymaking when we look to the future for how we do that? Well, I think that Congress should be engaged in this particular instance with providing the local flexibility that people need to make decisions that are best for their area. And from the federal level, one size does not always fit all. Several states did not shut down at all and have done okay and have seen little outbreaks here and there, like in South Dakota. Um, so I think from the congressional level is we have to allow people to make good medical scientific decisions uh, based on what's going on in their locale and how they go about protecting the, the employees, uh, the surgeons and the patients, but proceed with where proceed with identifying where the benefits outweigh the risks because we certainly cannot let all of these medical procedures go by the wayside because the health of America overall is going to suffer greatly. So from my standpoint, it's, it's up to Congress to try and do everything they can not to mandate these types of decisions from a federal level, but to make them at a local level. That local directive has been one that the AOS has supported. Um, and I know, I know Catherine and others at the association are actually in the process of sorting through what considerations, uh, what clinical considerations our physician members might want to think about when, when beginning elective surgery at that time. Catherine, do you want to speak on um, some of what we're advocating for going forward, given that we've got three stimulus packages that have been passed at this point? And now we're looking to the fourth to support our members. Sure. So I think, you know, some of the, the pro existing programs have been immensely helpful for our members. We've heard a lot of great feedback. For example, the second tranche of the uh, HHS 100 billion that was distributed uh, beginning last week. Um, and I think additional funding in that program would be extremely helpful for us. Um, I know that, you know, the, the Paycheck Protection Program ran out of funding, unfortunately, but replenishing that and um, reducing some of the regulations that are potentially making it difficult for our members to receive that money um, would be immensely helpful. We've also heard great feedback about the Medicare Advance Payment Program, um, which allows local MACs to uh, distribute funding. 
And uh, we believe that this program should continue. Uh, I know there is concern about the interest rate rate um, being a bit high. We would love to see that lowered. Um, and we would also love to see both the repayment of the program um, and how long you can take the loans out uh, extended to make it a bit easier for us. Um, and I think aside from the financials, liability is a big concern for us. Uh, you know, you're seeing a lot of a lot of patients for the first time in this very um, emotional, traumatic situation, um, and a lot of our physicians are uh, performing uh, performing uh, things in the hospital, procedures in the hospital that um, they don't normally perform. And so, I think having a little bit of liability protection. Um, would would be immensely helpful in making our members feel comfortable in being in those ER settings that they're potentially not in um, normally. So we touched upon the financial relief that has come out of the three stimulus bills. Uh, we talked about how that relief to keep practices open and afloat is also critical to access to care. Um, Catherine highlighted some of the importances in medical liability, the protection as our members are working outside of the traditional scope of our practice to answer the call to serve. Congressman Renstrup, when we look towards the fourth stimulus bill, what can you share with us about um, some of the deliberations uh, Congress is in the midst of and what they might be looking to for that fourth bill? Yeah, so um, what you mentioned liability, and that's one of the things, you know, we have a doctor's caucus in the House of Representatives, and uh, one of the things that we did seek and get in there was some reduction in liability for those that are treating patients with coronavirus in this uh, in, in, situa- in this situation where it's a little bit more of all hands on deck, sort of how we practice in, in war a lot of times. Um, in, in the fourth phase, one of the things we really want to do, to be honest with you, is to hear from you to see what where some of the glitches are. But we want to see how the first three phases actually play out because they really haven't gotten fully implemented yet. And I think it's only fair to, to see some of that play out. But on the Paycheck Protection Program, we are ready to fund that further. Right now, we're being blocked in the House from, from bringing it to the floor by Speaker Pelosi. Um, and unfortunately, she wants more money for some of the things that already have money in it still. And this is one of the things that the Paycheck Protection Program has been working, and it's popular, and we want to extend it. But right now, it's run out of money. That's a problem. So I would like to see that fixed first and foremost. Um, but there, there are things that we need to make sure people understand what it's like to run a practice. I think since I've been in Congress, I think there are many people that think once you're a business, you just have money all over the place. And I think Congress could direct CMS uh, to ex- to extend the recoupment deadline in the Medicare Accelerated Payments Program uh, at least until the end of the end of next year uh, to allow loan forgiveness for providers and facilities that can't afford re- repayment at that date. Um, you know, you don't get these patients, you don't get those procedures back. Um, I know how it is, and, and I know your surgeons will know that all these elective cases in particular, towards the end of the year when people have met their deductible, et cetera, they want to get this stuff done before the end of the year. So in that same vein right now, I would like to see us 
extend patients' capability for their FSAs, which normally would expire and they would lose some of that money at the end of the year, uh, be able to extend it into next year. I think that that would, would be a big help. Uh, but in addition, you know, the threat of a 10 and a quarter percent interest rate uh, makes it difficult to estimate future Medicare revenues in order to know whether it's prudent to ask for those funds or not. That's a that's a high rate. And so we have asked for that to be brought down to a more reasonable level. Uh, so it would be more functional and certainly be taken with less anxiety. So there's been about a million in funds from HHS, the first to providers, uh, but these funds alone, they're not enough to sustain a practice, and especially in musculoskeletal care. But um, we're going to continue to look at the things that are limiting. And our main goal is, one, to keep you open, to keep your very valued employees uh, across the board. And so the advocacy that you give, we hear from your members and from your leadership, is really important. Um, you know, I'd like to see a, a lot more uh, avenues and openings for physician-owned practices, physician-owned uh, surgical centers, etc. We've had a lot of restrictions on that, and I think we need to open those back up. Congressman Renship, you actually mentioned several things that I know our um, lobby team, both um, congressionally with with you and your colleagues, as well as um, through the regulatory agencies are working towards. Um, you also mentioned um, opening up some of the other types of practices like physician-owned hospitals. I know the AOS was really pleased to see that happen recently in response to the patient surge in our healthcare system. So, uh, Catherine, do you have anything you want to add on the advocacy front um, with regard to some of the things Congressman Winstrup mentioned? So uh, we've heard, you know, the, the topic that is on everybody's mind um, as we're getting into the fourth package is, of course, surprise billing. Um, it's a constant threat for us, and we heard that it could potentially be in package two, package three, and now potentially package four. You've always been such a great champion of ours uh, on this issue. And so I just was curious um, what you're hearing about uh, surprise billing and if it will uh, potentially be in, in a fourth package. Well, I can tell you from the doctor's caucus stand, uh, stand in the House of Representatives, we don't want it in any of these packages. We want to continue to progress and, and fight for what we think is best. And best for the patients, best for the providers, best for medicine in, in general. And um, I'm on Ways and Means Committee. I'm very proud of our bill that uh, we put out that's bipartisan. And I think it's the one that is probably most pleasing to everyone in the industry and should be to including patients. You know, we want to take patients out of the equation. Patients are anxious enough. When they are worried about this particular happening going on, it affects their care in many cases. We want to take them out of it. Uh, I'm for arbitration uh, with with no particular ranges and no median involved, and that we should be able to to negotiate that. What we have put forward is to also put forward a timeline that you have 30 days for the doctor and the and the insurance provider to reach an agreement. And if you have not reached an agreement after that, then you would go to arbitration. And I think that's, that's the best and most fair, fair and free market way to go in this situation. If you start 
putting caps or you know bottom numbers and top numbers on it, that's a problem. And if you think about it, if you were a practice and say you were make you were in a contract that was paying you 130% of Medicare, I'll just throw that out there as an example. And the median by the insurance company, as they put numbers out anyway, was say less than that. Well, they might come back and say, well, we're not going to negotiate with you next time because we're getting away with paying everybody less. That's that's not where we want to go because what can happen, and I've seen this happen in other circumstances, you know, you're talking about, especially with orthopedics, is taking call. And that's that's really what it is. This is the non-elective stuff. This is the emergent stuff. And you're talking about taking call, and you just say, we're not going to take call anymore. And we've seen it happen at hospitals where they end up paying doctors. This happened in our group, paying the doctors to be on call, whether you came in or not. That doesn't help things. Those are the types of things that we, we want to avoid, obviously. As far as the elective stuff, um, you know, we put in guidelines that will make it very transparent that patients can have a, an absolute idea of what their costs are going to be before the surgery is performed. And, and I think that's more appropriate. We also had situations, and maybe a lot of your members have had it too, where I had patients that came in and uh, sometimes almost in tears because they said, you know, you were listed as being in, in my insurance plan. And I said, I, we got out of that one two years ago. And they signed up for it because the doctor they liked was in it. And, and so th- those types of actions by the insurance companies are not tolerated anymore in our bill. And I think that can be helpful to everyone and certainly make it easier in the doctor-patient relationship. Congressman Winstrup, you talked about the ways in which COVID-19 is impacting surprise billing. And obviously, our members um, and much of the healthcare community will be on the edge of our seat uh, waiting to find out what happens to that issue. It's one that AAOS has been tackling since the start of 2019 and now into 2020. I'd like to end our interview with talking about... um, what our members can be looking for in the future for so many, in so many ways, COVID-19 is changing healthcare on its, on its head. And so many of the issues that we thought we were going to tackle and improve uh, prior authorization, um, you know, lifting those burdens, medical liability, so many of our regular advocacy issues are now changing because of this pandemic. So if you can leave our listeners a a glimmer of hope or something that they can uh, keep in mind for the future of healthcare. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's, that's come out is we've seen a lot of waiving of some regulations and it's had no deleterious effects as we've gone ahead to try and come up with tests more rapidly, uh, for antivirals more rapidly. And when talking to the agencies in place right now, they're saying if we're not seeing any negative effects from this, we want to leave those regulations out permanently. You know, from the beginning of this, I, I said, what I hope that we can do is we go through and struggle through a lot of the glitches that we're going to find in the process along the way that, that at the end of the day, we said that this is our finest hour, that we've actually made things so much better for the future and so much better for innovation. You know, you mentioned prior authorization. I've always had a problem with that. It's made absolutely no sense to me. If you have people that are doing things that inappropriately, that rises to the surface. But the prior authorization has been such a, a negative 
in, in the providing of care to patients, especially in a, in a rapid fashion and in a logical fashion. And we've got good doctors out there making good decisions every day. And if somebody's not, the community usually knows that. So things like that, that maybe we say, you know what, this isn't something we really need to do because it really didn't help the patient at the end of the day. Uh, but then again, like I said, regulations, increased innovation, the ability for people to to come out and do great things is very important. And I think you're going to see more of that come from this. And But it's still going to be always about patient safety and trying to forecast the future. And at the end of the day, I hope we have a system in place, an emergency system, a supply system that we don't have to worry about because we know that it'll always, always be there. And uh, surprise billing, unless it's, the, unless it's the bill that I want, I hope it's not in one of these packages just to get it done in a must-pass bill. I think that we hopefully will pass the best bill, which in my mind is the one in ways and means right now, which was passed in a bipartisan fashion. Well, we thank you for your leadership in in Congress. um, And thank you for taking the time to offer this perspective to our surgeon members on COVID-19. We hope that you'll join us for a future episode. We'd love to bring you back and get more perspective. Um, But again, thanks for coming on the show, Congressman Winstrup and Catherine, too. For any of our members who are interested in learning more about COVID-19, be sure to check out our COVID Member Resource Center. And be sure to check out your advocacy action alerts. I know Catherine and her team are always sending action alerts on issues um, to engage members of Congress like Congressman Winstrup. We'd love to have our members engaged in the fight and we hope to come out on the other side stronger than ever before. Thank you both for joining us. You bet. We always need to hear from the people in the trenches. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Bone Beat from the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal care, please visit aaos.org advocacy.